Open a Bible to Luke chapter 1. If you're using the church Bibles, that's on page 1016. This morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1 verses, uh, nope that's not right, verses 26 through 38. A story that's traditionally known as the Annunciation, that is the announcement of the good news to Mary. It's the last Sunday of Advent, the last Sunday before we celebrate the Feast of Christmas. And so we reflect on this announcement to Mary right before Christ is born. Listen now as I read Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age will also, uh, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. I wonder, uh, perhaps some of the kids in the room are really, really, really wanting something for Christmas. Maybe today or tomorrow. Uh, you know, remember the Christmas story, Ralphie wants the little Red Ryder BB gun and he's every scheme possible to try and get it. Uh, when I was younger, the hope was for a Nintendo and it was kind of like just seemed unfathomable gift. And then uh, actually a grandmother got me a Nintendo one year. And uh, after years of anticipation, I wonder if you've hoped for that. I think especially the young kids, you know, it almost, it's like an ache in your bones. Like I just, just want that, whatever it is, bike or, or sled or video game. Well, if you can kind of take that little anticipation and magnify it by like a billion, we can kind of get ourselves into the shoes of Israel in the first century. That promise to David that we read earlier in the service that Israel looked forward to, this long-expected promised king who would be born to set his people free. Indeed, Israel believed that this coming king would be the hope of all the earth, the desire of every nation. 
Uh, because Mary and Joseph are so far removed from us 2,000 years ago, it can be hard for us to remember how far apart Mary and Joseph were from David and the promises made to him. But it was about 1,000 years before the story we just read that God made that promise to David. Uh, that is to say, we're actually just about as far removed from William the Conqueror in 1066 as Mary and Joseph are removed from David. It's a long time. Israel had been without a king almost twice as long as the United States has been a country. Waiting in hope and expectation, and yet surely also doubts and wonder. Is the promise still good? Or maybe it's past its expiration date. Well, what Mary has announced to her at the Annunciation is the good news. The good news that God is on the move, that he's about to bring to fulfillment all these hopes and longings and expectations. What I want us to see from this story of the Annunciation is three truths this morning. The good news comes from God. The good news is that the Lord is come and that you must respond to the good news. First, the good news is from God. The good news is from God. It begins with God. Especially if you're familiar with the Christmas story, it's easy to skip over a little but important phrase right at the beginning of the story in the first verse. The angel Gabriel was sent from God. The angel was sent from God. This good news that Gabriel brings is from God. As the carol puts it, the world, uh, long lay the world in sin and error pining. For centuries there's been no king, no new prophet. Israel has been absorbed into the Roman Empire. Those amongst God's people who are faithful are waiting with eager anticipation. But it's no human plan like, let's do the Messiah thing now. That's what we should do next. Rather, it begins totally from God's side. It's no mere human scheme or plan. No mere human king could redeem the world. And so God takes the initiative. He sends Gabriel to announce world-shaking good news. It's an important reminder that this is the fundamental dynamic of God's way in the world. God's work begins with God, not with us. And so God's great plan to redeem and restore the world is just that, God's plan, not ours. Of course, God works in and through people like Elizabeth and Mary that are referred to in this story, but that work begins with God. He takes the initiative to put the world right. He takes the initiative to put individual lives right. Well, to emphasize this point, the good news comes from God and is first announced in about as humble of a setting as you can imagine. The story begins with a stark contrast. An angel from God in heaven comes not to Rome where Caesar reigned, not to Jerusalem where God had chosen to put his temple on Mount Zion, but to Galilee, a rural area dotted with maybe 200 small towns and villages. And in Galilee, Gabriel comes to Nazareth, a small village of four or 500 people. And in Nazareth, he doesn't come to the mayor or the elders or the richest citizen in town, but to a young woman, 
perhaps in her late teens, named Mary, who was betrothed to a carpenter named Joseph. The good news comes from God to the margins, to an obscure people in a small place on the very edge of the empire. About the closest contemporary equivalent I can think of is maybe a teen girl living in a small town on a reservation who is descended from a tribal chief who ran a tribe 500 years ago. Mary is descended from David, but it's so far gone it almost doesn't matter. But this is all part of the point. Only God can put the world right, and he does so by working through the humble, not the mighty. Paul notes this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, consider your calling, brothers. It's a good reminder to all of us. Not many of you were wise, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Mary recognizes the same truth a little bit later in Luke 1. We'll read uh, this tonight. But she says in her song after she visits Elizabeth, God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. Mary recognizes this profound truth that God works through the humble, the rejected. But in Luke, uh, in Luke 1 that we've just read, verse 29, her first response to the announcement of God's breaking into the world is to be troubled. Uh, if this good news that comes from God is true, the whole world is being turned upside down. The proud are being cast down, the humble are being lifted up, the entire world is being flipped over. And indeed, that is troubling news. Well, what is this earth-shaking news that the world will be turned upside down? It's simply this. The good news is that the Lord is come. The Lord is come. That's earth-shaking news. The Lord, the God of Israel, is come. But the way that the Lord has come is unexpected, to say the least. Mary is told, don't be afraid, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end." In Matthew's gospel, it tells uh, the kind of parallel story that an angel appears to Joseph, Mary's fiance. But that angel, uh, in that appearance also, the angel stresses that this baby should be named Jesus. Both Joseph and Mary are told, when the baby's born, name him Jesus. Uh, Jesus is simply the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, and it was a common name in ancient Israel, just as Joshua is a fairly common name today, although um, if you're having any babies, name them Joshua, not Nathan. We're full up in this church on Nathan's, but uh, uh, it is a common name around the world, not uncommon. And yet, what can it mean that the angel stresses to Mary and Joseph this baby should be named Jesus? Well, the name Jesus means the Lord is salvation. 
what can it mean that a little baby born to Mary is the Lord is salvation? Well, the angel says it's because he's going to be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. How will this baby be great? The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. The good news announced to Mary is the promise to David all those years ago is not expired. The good news is that the Lord is come as a baby to take the throne of David, to reign over the house of Israel, God's people, and to establish a kingdom which will never end. As one uh, pastor puts it, the kingdom that Jesus comes to rule is the renewal of the whole world through the entrance of supernatural forces. As things are brought back under Christ's rule and authority, they are restored to health and beauty and freedom. Or as the carol puts it, no more let sin and sorrow grow. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. This baby, who is the Lord is salvation, uh, who is the Lord saves, come in the flesh, He will rule God's forever kingdom. That's a challenge to the empire. It's a challenge to the Caesar. It's a challenge to the status quo. The whole world is being turned upside down. Well, Mary's a young woman engaged to be married, and so it's not surprising that the angel will say a baby is in the near future. Uh, It's not surprising that she might conceive and bear a child, but uh, Mary seems to sense something more is being said here. Perhaps it's that this baby will be called the Son of the Most High, or just imagining that her own child would fulfill this Davidic ideal, ruling a forever kingdom is too much to imagine. So she asks, how can this be? I'm still a virgin. How can this be? And the angel responds, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This brings us to the virgin birth, or rather the virgin conception of Jesus. Matthew and Luke independently report that this was the case. And so it's no late invention thought up down the road and later in church history, but rather it was being circulated in the very early church before the Gospels were even written. Uh, During a time when eyewitnesses, perhaps including Mary herself, were still alive, people were saying there was something strange about this pregnancy. The doctrine of the virgin birth isn't intended to denigrate marriage or the usual modes of conception and birth, but rather it sets Jesus apart from every other child who has been born in the world. It seemed unbelievable even to Mary herself, but the angel says this is going to be the case And he says it's going to happen because of two things. Through the Spirit, God will work internally. And through his power, God will work externally together to bring about this miraculous pregnancy. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's the kind of language used in the Old Testament. The Spirit comes on Samson and gives him supernatural strength. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's a work of God, not human agency. The virgin birth isn't an explanation for the incarnation, but rather a sign pointing to it. The point is that what's about to happen is beyond human ability. It's a work of God. Not just the pregnancy and birth, but the entire salvation that 
comes through Jesus is God's work. And so the angel says this miraculously born child will be called, will be holy, set apart for God's purposes, and he will be the son of God. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised to David that David's son would be a son to me. So son of God can be a royal title. But once we see the whole story, the whole unfolding of Matthew's gospel, once we stand with the centurion at the foot of the cross in Matthew 27, and that centurion sees Jesus breathe his last breath, and he says, surely this was the Son of God. We come back to this verse, and we see that there's more packed in here than just another royal title. We see that this being the Son of God is profoundly good news. By the power of God the Father, Through the work of the Holy Spirit, God the Son has come in the flesh to rule God's kingdom. The God who created all things from nothing enters the world as a helpless baby, born to obscure parents in a small town on the very edge of the known world as part of a plan to put all things right. It seems too good to be true. How can someone, how can a baby be conceived without a father? And yet the angel reminds Mary in verse 37, nothing will be impossible for God. The God who created all things from nothing can create a baby in her womb without a father. Nothing is impossible for God. That same phrase actually recurs later in Luke's gospel. Uh, I don't know why I went to Matthew 27. I realized I'm in Luke's gospel here all of a sudden. I was, <laughs> should have stuck with the same gospel, but don't worry about that. Uh, uh, what am I saying? In Luke, later in Luke's gospel, the same phrase is used. Nothing is impossible with God. After the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus says, you've got to sell all that you have and follow me, then the disciples, they say, well, if this rich guy who seems to have it all put together and has kept the law perfectly, if he finds it so hard to enter the kingdom of heaven, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, you're starting to get the point. He responds, what is impossible with man is possible with God. There's an analogy between what happens in Mary's womb and what needs to happen in each of our hearts. It's impossible for us as mere humans. And yet it is possible with God. The uh, carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, picks up this analogy in the last verse We sing, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. In a weird sense, if you'll stick with me, the virgin birth almost needs to happen in each of our hearts if we're truly going to be uh, Christ's followers. That Jesus needs to be born in our hearts, and it's something that's impossible for you. It's impossible for me, and yet it is possible with God. This good news that the Lord has come, it it, it begins with God. He sends the angel to announce it. The good news is that the Lord himself has come in the flesh as a baby born to the Virgin Mary. This good news that Christians proclaim is not a new philosophy or self-help program. There's not 12 steps to do to fix your life. There's not a specific diet to adopt to make everything right and live as long as possible. Rather, the good news is that the Lord is come. God is on the move. Jesus is doing something himself. He's taken it on himself to put the world right, to fix things. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in him. 
This good news isn't telling us something we need to do. Rather, it's telling us what God has already done. But we must respond to the good news. We must respond to the good news. The good news tells us there's more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophies. There is a triune God who created all things and who took it on himself to fix things when they went wrong. And that by the power of God through the Holy Spirit, the Son of God entered our world in the most humble way possible for our sake. That God who is rich beyond all splendor for love's sake became poor. And if this is the true story of what's going on in the world, we live Again, stick with me in a world that truly is magical, that's filled with powers beyond our comprehension. A world in which God becomes flesh. And so the question is, how do we respond? How do we live rightly if this really is the sort of world that we live in? Well, as we end, Mary provides us with a model response. Maybe you notice that she actually responds to the angel three different times. In verse 29, 34, and 38. And we see in Mary's response here that coming to faith is a process. It's oftentimes something you grow into over time. It's not a switch that just gets flipped on. I mean, sometimes that happens. The Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, uh, basically as soon as the gospel is explained to him, he says, well, baptize me now. Let's do this. Uh, So sometimes that happens. But other times, like Mary, it's something you grow into over time. It's a process. First, in verse 29, Mary is troubled. She's troubled. She hears the good news and she's disturbed. It says she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. That trying to discern, it's, it's, it's sometimes used in accounting in Greek. That it's saying she's like adding things up, trying to figure out what's going on. Mary is not uh, credulous or gullible, just ready to believe anything. She's as struggling to meet... Uh, She's having as much trouble meeting an angel all of a sudden, unexpectedly, as you or I might. She's saying, what what does this mean? What's going on? Am I really seeing an angel? Can this possibly be true? She's rational, trying to work out what she is seeing and hearing. Mary ultimately is not convinced because she is credulous or gullible, but through a combination of evidence and experience. She sees specific signs and she experiences things in her life and together, that's what ultimately convinces her. And it's the same for us. We have evidence in scripture, but we also have to have experience in our life and together it convinces us. Second in verse 34, Mary moves from being troubled to questioning. To questioning. She still has doubts. She's troubled. The angel tells her, don't be afraid. He announces the good news in verses 30 to 33. But Mary still has doubt. She says, how could this possibly be? It doesn't make sense to me. Explain this. And in a sense, then, Mary gives us permission to ask questions ourselves. Say, I don't fully understand this. Help me to understand this. And Mary also is reassuring to us that if if friends or family, for example, have questions about, you know, how does this make sense? Help me to understand that. It's okay. Don't feel threatened if you're a Christian by questions. It's part of the process of faith. Or at least it can be part of the process of faith, asking questions. Sometimes doubts lead to further inquiry, as in Mary's case, and that's a good thing because it leads us to the truth as we ask more questions. Other times doubts are simply used as an excuse to defer decision, to avoid responding to the good news. But that's no way to live. Rarely in life are we ever completely, totally, 100% sure of anything. We have to make decisions when there's still 
some doubt. The angel doesn't rebuff Mary's questions, but rather points to two signs to her. First, the virgin conception itself will be a sign, certainly to Mary. Okay? She knows that no father is involved. She knows that she's pregnant. And so it's a sign to her that this baby will indeed be the Son of God. But then second, in verse 36, she's told her relative Elizabeth, is already, who was called barren, who everybody knew couldn't have kids, is actually six months along in a pregnancy. And in verse 39, again, we'll read it tonight, Mary gets up and immediately goes to Elizabeth to check for herself. Again, she's still like, okay, I, I want to see the evidence. Is this really true? But then third in verse 39, I think it is, verse 38 rather, uh, Mary responds with simple acceptance, uh, with this rightly famous response, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This doesn't mean she has it all figured out. It doesn't mean that the plan makes sense to her yet. Okay, she's saying, fine, I'm going to have this baby, but I'm still out here on the edge of the empire with no power, no position, nothing. You know, I, I have no clue how this is going to work out. But what she is willing to do is trust God and submit to her part in his plan. She probably realizes this is going to have potentially high cost for her. In Matthew's parallel story, Joseph is about ready to divorce her because he thinks she's been unfaithful to him. And certainly other friends and family neighbors would have had similar suspicions. You know, Mary's got questions in her mind. Will my reputation ever recover if I sign up for God's plan? What will this cost me personally? Will my family accept me or maybe reject me? I mean, those are all the questions we have, isn't it? What's this going to do to my reputation if I fully submit to God's plan? What's it going to do to my relationships with friends and family? Will they accept me? Will it make things awkward? It's important to count up the cost. And yet Mary provides us with a model, with these questions in mind, with doubts, with fears. Nevertheless, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What a remarkable picture of faith. Do we respond to God's word in the same way? Let it be to me according to your word. I'll obey your word, even the parts I don't like. Even when I don't fully understand why your word says what it says, I'm going to follow it and I'm going to submit to it. Is that how we respond? The good news begins with God. It's that God took it on himself to put the world right. The central message of the good news is that the Lord is come. That Jesus is not just a good man, but God come in the flesh, fully God, fully man, who takes on upon himself the burden of all humanity to rule over God's kingdom, to put things right, to fix things. And we have to respond. It's not that we have to do anything, but it's sort of like unwrapping a Christmas gift. We have to respond. I wonder, where are you at this Christmas season, this Christmas Eve? Are you maybe somewhere in this process of growing into faith? Are you troubled by this good news? If it really sinks home that God once walked the earth as a human, does that bother you? Or maybe you have doubts and questions. Is that leading you to inquiry or to endlessly deferring making a decision? Or are you ready to respond with simple acceptance? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let us pray together. Gracious Lord, we ask that once again, 
where we ask once again that you would be born in our hearts. For some of us, we have trusted you for decades. And yet once again, may this Christmas message be fresh to us. The remarkable good news that you are at work putting the world right. For others of us, Lord, we're somewhere in this process of growing into faith. Maybe we have doubts. Maybe we have questions. Maybe we have concerns about our reputation or how it will affect us in society. We ask that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would be born in our hearts. Above all, Lord, we ask that all glory and honor would be given to you this last Sunday of Advent, this Christmas Eve, this Christmas season. As we celebrate Christmas with friends, with family, with feasting, with giving gifts, may it all remind us of the great hope of the gospel, that you gave us the greatest gift imaginable, your own son, so that we might have fellowship with you, that we might feast in heaven with you one day. Fill our hearts with joy at this great good news. Amen.